I know Pastor prayed, but I'd like to pray again. Father, I come before you and uh, I'm in awe of you. I am grateful that you placed us here to worship you. It said that the church is a singing church and we do sing and worship. Help us to enter into you, Father. May the words that come forth be your words that change us from the inside out, not just give us knowledge, but impel us to serve others with your love. As you've loved us, let us love others. We cannot do it on our own. We need your help. So we pray you have your way. You are worthy of it all. In your name, amen. Okay. We're finishing up the last chapter of James. Chapter 5, so you can start turning there. There's going to be a number of scriptures, and we'll start with verses 1 to 3. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for your miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches are corrupted, and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver are corroded, and their corrosion will be a witness against you, and will eat your flesh like fire. You have heaped up treasure in the last days. So James starts chapter 5 pretty strong. He basically comes on strong. We can let JJ do his thing. It's all right. He's a pleasant distraction. Um, James talks about in chapter 5 at the beginning, he's really hammering it on those who are rich. And if you looked in the first couple of chapters in James chapter 1 and 2, he touches on lightly, first saying that it's not about your status and not about whether you have money or not. And those who are rich, you need to consider yourself poor. And those who are poor need need to consider yourself rich in Christ. Okay? In chapter 2, he talks about how we need to treat. We need to treat people equally, not about their status. But here right now, at the beginning of chapter 5, he says, wow, you guys who are rich, look at you. Weep and howl. The word actually is shriek. Okay? Shriek. Okay? So he's basically saying, those of us who have wealth, and I know it's hard for many to believe, but we are the ones he's talking about. We in the first world, we in America, are the rich. We're the ones who know we're going to get our food tomorrow. We know we have shelter. We know we have air conditioning in the summer and heat in the winter. We have all the blessings of wealth that certainly back then kings did not even have. We are that rich. He's talking to us. He's talking to us. He says, the things, your riches are corrupted us. And so our wealth, our self-sufficiency have affected our spirits, our hearts. They've taken us away from you, from you, God. The poor recognize that they don't have stuff and they need to depend on God. We who are wealthy, we delude ourselves in thinking, hey, we can get by without God. We can make it on our own. And so, in Matthew chapter 19, verses 23 to 24, Jesus is talking to his disciples, and he says to his disciples, Assuredly, I say to you that it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And again, I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. So, our wealth, our self-sufficiency, makes it difficult. Now he follows it and says, it's not impossible with God. It is with man. We can't make it on our own. We cannot make it through our own effort. Look at 1 Timothy 6, 9 to 10. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare and to many foolish and harmful lusts 
which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves to many sorrows. This is the thing that James is talking about. When we pursue things for ourselves, when we chase after our own security, our own wealth, our own prosperity, and who of us is not tempted? I'm tempted. I'm tempted to get a new vehicle. I'm tempted to get new things. We're all tempted wanting those things. We see something new on television. We want the latest electronic device. I think my phone, which is three years old, well, it's time to upgrade. You know, I see somebody else with a nice phone. I want the same thing they have. We want to keep up with the Jones, and we get in this cycle. Many of us going into debt to do it. And what James is talking about is the very things that you treasure, the gold, the silver, the things he talks about that we think will not corrode because that's the property of gold and silver, is they don't naturally tarnish. That's why they were treasured. They themselves will corrode. They will burn in fire. They will not last. So he goes even further and talks about uh, let me let me actually backtrack one moment. Look at Luke chapter 18, verses 22. So, Jesus is not saying you can't have anything of wealth. But what Jesus is saying is you have to have the right heart. And in 18.22, he says, So when Jesus heard these things, this is when he's talking to the rich young ruler who says he's done all the right things, followed the law of Moses, Jesus says to him, you still lack one thing. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. And we know that that rich young ruler walked away sadly, because he was unwilling to surrender. So the challenge for us that James is talking about is a heart attitude. And the heart attitude that we have is if we're desiring to pursue after things of the world and we're not following Jesus, we will suffer many sorrows. We will pursue things that will lead us down the wrong path. And he's asking and inviting us, actually admonishing us, to choose to follow Jesus. And look how much further it is, because that wickedness, that desire, is brought to a culmination James 4 to 6. Indeed, the wagers, wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you have kept back by fraud, cry out. And the cries of the reapers have reached the ears of the Lord of Shabbat. You have lived on the earth in pleasure and luxury, and you have fattened your hearts as in a day of slaughter. You have condemned, you have murdered the just, he does not resist you. So, we're looking at this and go, well, I haven't done anything wrong here. I've not paid people their stuff. I'm not the kind of corrupt person who doesn't pay. I don't even have employees. I don't have anybody working for me. So that doesn't really apply to me. That's not true. The challenge for us, and this is hard for us, the wealth that we have and the things that we buy are based on the labors of others. And in many countries around the world, like in China and in India, in Pakistan and Bangladesh, like some of the clothing that we get, the labors are not paid well. And we look and think, I want to get rich. I can get that really inexpensively. Not realizing where it comes from. Thinking, ah, if I don't know how it's made, I'm not responsible. That is not what James is talking about. And so the heart attitude we have to invite and look at is, one, not be so materialistic, but two, be conscious of what we do. Now, I'm not saying if you're ignorant, you're going to be in a condemnation. But I am saying we need to be sensitive to where the Spirit directs us, that what we're doing is acting in a way that glorifies Him. Okay? So, unbeknownst to us, certainly most of us, we don't know where we get things. But those of us who like hybrid cars, for example, who want the batteries, and even the lithium batteries, they use cobalt, and the cobalt is mined in the Democratic Republic of Congo, and they're treated like slaves. Mass poverty. 70% of the cobalt in the world comes from the DRC. Okay? And we buy, we have lithium batteries in our phones. So right now we're supporting the slavery of the Africans in the Congo. 
Do we give up our phones? I don't know. Do we need to be conscious of that? Yeah. We need to be very sensitive, and we need to seek the Lord on this. We need wisdom from above. So we are that heart. And what he's talking about when he says Lord of Shabbat, this is not Lord of the Sabbath that they talk about in some chapters of the book. In other translations, they use the word Lord of Heavenly Armies or Lord of Hosts. This is the this thing is this is the God who will come, okay, at the end times. This is the God of wrath. Not to say he's not a God of love, but this is the God of judgment who's going to hold us to account. By God's grace. And it's only through His grace we get to be in heaven. But we will become, we will be for, we will come before a holy and righteous God and we'll have to give an account for our life. Okay? There are going to be rewards for things we've done right, my good and faithful servants, but there are also going to be an account for what we didn't do and what we did do that disrespected the name of God. I'm not trying to condemn you. I am saying we need to seek God even more. We need His wisdom. We need to be humbled and to realize that none of us are righteous on our own. We may think we're righteous, but we're not. It's only by God's grace that we saved, and we need to ask Him, please help us that we can be holy and righteous. And what James is trying to do is admonish them, saying, you need to be mindful. He's telling the rich there at that time, so it's definitely speaking to the people there and many of them who are actually doing this. But that doesn't mean it doesn't speak to us as well. So, we need to pay people what they're due. And that's something we need to be conscious of. In 1 Timothy 5.18, For the Scripture says, She shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. It's a quote I've heard my pastor share. The laborer is worthy of his wages. People are worth what they are. And they need to be paid accordingly to that. So that's why in ministry, we need to pay people for the work that they do. But that's also why people do things for us. We need to give an account for them and be responsible. A lot of people don't do that. A lot of ministries don't even do that. That's a problem. Okay, let's move on to verse 7 and 8. Therefore, be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, waiting patiently for it until it receives the early and latter rain. You also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. So as I just mentioned earlier, James immediately gets to the point. The point is, where is your heart? He's asking all of us. Our priorities need to be always, where is my heart? Not just what's on the outside of the cup. Not what I've wiped clean. Where is my heart? Each moment of every day, where is your heart? Are you waiting for the Lord? And he uses the analogy of the farmer. Why does he use the farmer? Okay? Because that farmer is somebody who waits. He waits with reasonable hope for an expectation of reward. He waits a long time. You know, you're planting, it takes time for it to come to fruition. He waits, but he's not just waiting, sitting around. He's working all the while. He waits relying on things out of his own power with his eyes on heaven. So if you're a farmer, he doesn't know if it's going to rain or he's going to have enough sunshine. He doesn't know if there's not going to be a tornado or a hailstorm. He waits patiently. He waits despite changing and uncertain circumstances. He waits encouraged by the value of the harvest. What's the value of our harvest? He waits encouraged by the work and harvest of others. So one of the things we, that's really precious to us in the body that I love is when I look around, like tonight, and we're all worshiping together. I'm encouraged when I see others who step out are trusting in faith in God. That spurs my faith and encourages me. Encourages me. When we're out on our own, when we're out there, okay, it's the lone sheep that gets eaten. Okay, We're meant to be together in the body. I can't say that enough. There are a lot of good ministries doing things, but we're meant to be intimately in the body together walking hand in hand, and when you see somebody stray, helping them come back into the fold. And we'll talk a little bit more about that. Okay? He waits also, because frankly, he really has no other option. And neither do we. He waits aware of how the seasons work. So we need to wait, in this case, how does God work? God works always on his focus on 
What are his priorities? One, that which brings him the most glory. He will always work to bring him the most glory. Not that that's a bad thing. It's actually a very, very good thing. Because what brings him the most glory? A loving and lowly God that condescends to come to earth as Jesus. That decides the God of the universe to come down to save us when he had, makes no sense. I wouldn't do it. That he would do that for us. That's a God you want to follow. That's a God if he gets glory because he gets glory of only things that are really good. Better good than we can imagine. Certainly, as I've said, better than we can deserve. Okay? So it's for his glory and it's for the benefit of all. So I said for his glory, he wants all to be saved. That's his heart. He wants every single person to come into the he- to heaven with him. That's his heart. That's why Jesus died. That's why he was born again. That's why the Holy Spirit is available for all. That's what also impels us. Why are we here? We're here as God's agent to help others, to share the good news, to reach out to the lost, to those who don't know, to share how God has blessed us to bless others. We're not here to feather our own cap, to do our own thing for our own life. And I love what the last phrase here from Dave Guzik. He waits because as time goes on, it becomes more important, not less important to do so. So when you start to see your crop coming, you go, I'm getting a crop here. That corn is coming. I really need to be really watching. It becomes more and more valuable the closer it is time to harvest. What we do here becomes more and more valuable. As the time passes, it's not less urgent. The urgency actually increases. And one of the things he talks about here, and you know, some people, different commentaries have different thoughts about patiently until it receives the early and latter rain. Um, if you look at it solely from a perspective in the Middle East, um, their seasons are kind of opposite to ours. They tend to do theirs in what we would consider a winter. So we're looking at around the early rains would be October and the latter rains in April and May. So from a practical perspective, he needs both of those rains. The initial rains to have the seeds flourish and the last ones to make it come to a head. Um, but there's also a spiritual component to that. And let's look at Joel chapter 2, verses 28 and 29. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. And also on my men servants and my maid servants. And that's also spoken again in Acts chapter 2, verses 17 to 18. The coming of the Holy Spirit. Okay? The baptism of the Holy Spirit when all were baptized by tongues of fire. So, many believe that the latter rains also refers to an, another blessing. Certainly, um, God has throughout the centuries blessed with different revivals at different times with His Spirit. And at the turn of the last century in Azusa Street in Los Angeles, and now you have the you know, the Pentecostal movement that's, that's spread throughout, um, frankly, throughout the world. The point is, God is continually pouring out His Spirit for those who are hungry and are patient, earnest, and willing to seek Him. And that's available to us. Why? Okay, let's go on. Actually, let's move on to verses 9 to 11. Do not grumble against one another, brethren, lest you be condemned. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. My brethren, take the prophets who spoke the name of the Lord as an example of suffering and patience. Indeed, we count them blessed who endure. You have heard of the perseverance of Job and seen the end intended by the Lord, that the Lord is very compassionate and merciful. How many of us have grumbled? Yeah, we all have. I don't like what's happening. This is unfair. 
I was in that earlier today, and I realized I had to catch myself. I am dissatisfied. This isn't right. You grumble. He says here, do not grumble against one another. He's speaking, obviously, of the body. We can look at what happens and, you know, my housemates may not do something that I ask them to, leave things out in the dishes, or I may do something that they have reason to be frustrated with and something I may not fall through on something I said I would do. We do that within the body itself where somebody may not greet us, they walk by us, and you're ready to hold your hand, hey, and they just pass you by like you didn't exist. You go, what's the matter with them? Our nature is to take offense and to see things from our perspective. And then we have that human heart that's the judgment seat that I've heard, as Rex Andrews says, and I do agree, we tend to judge everything way too much. And James is saying, watch it. When you judge, you'll be judged. That judge is the Heavenly Father. He will hold us to account. And he's asking you, even when you're offended, even when things don't agree, be patient. He uses the example of the prophets as an example of suffering and patience. When they were righteous, you hear the story of Jeremiah again and again, righteous in everything that he did and everything that he spoke. You hear what happened to Elijah, righteous in everything that he did. And they use the example here of Job. And you see the affliction that he had and the perseverance that he had over and over and over. And in the midst of it, even when his wife said, curse God and die, he refused to do so. And the thing that we have to get is that in our suffering and in our patience, God promises to work it all out together. He will not waste any tear that we have. He will not waste our trial. Especially when it's unjust. Blessed is the man who perseveres when you're falsely accused. So, the challenge for us, the invitation, this is the opportunity for real growth. We're not perfect. Do we screw up? Every day. But the invitation that James is saying, he says, when you choose not to grumble, when you choose to forgive, and you're focused at that moment when you naturally want to take offense, when that's where the flesh says, and we choose, God, have mercy on them and bless them. Forgive me for my irritated attitude, my thanklessness, my ingratitude. Let me be grateful for what you've done. Even if nobody talks to me, I have you, Jesus, at every moment. Even if I'm going to pay what I deserve, I have you, Jesus, at every moment. Those are the things that he's inviting us to do. And that doesn't mean we don't address wrongs. But the attitude and heart that we have to do it makes a huge difference. Especially if we're doing it for the blessing of others more than ourselves. Okay? The challenge for us is we want to fix things when we've been wronged less concerned about the wrongs of others. And that's not what Jesus was about. That's not what James is talking about. So we look at the ultimate end, and we see that. I love here, he says, three things about Job and why he's a significant example. You see that he had tremendous perseverance. He had tremendous patience. But you also see the end intended by the Lord. Okay? And the this end is really kind of amazing because this refers to Ephesians chapter 3, verses 9 to 13. Okay? What did this whole thing have to do? Why did God have Job suffer? Yes, we all know he wanted him to understand what faith is like, to trust in God and not his own self-righteousness. But the very beginning of the book of Job, it was the adversary, it was Satan who's coming, and God was in the heavenly throne. He also did this to teach the angels. And we don't get that because we don't see that perspective. But Ephesians 3, 3 to 9 to 13 talks about it. 
and to make all see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the ages has been hidden in God, who created all things through Jesus Christ, to the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church, might be made known by the church to who? To the principalities and powers in the heavenly places, according to the eternal purpose which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through faith in him. Therefore I ask you, do not lose heart at my tribulations for you, which is your glory. Which is your glory. This is why he says over and over in Scripture, the angels are in awe. They don't understand what's going on. Most of the time, we don't understand what's going on. But they don't understand what's going on. They're there with God in heaven. They don't have faith because they see everything. And they see how God works through us, and we're going to get to judge angels. I'm like, yeah, I don't get that. How do we have judge them? They're angels. They're the ones who can wipe out 200,000 plus like this. How do we get to judge them? That's the mystery that God's doing. This is the purpose for the suffering and the trials that we go through. It's preparing us. It's preparing us to have the wisdom when we seek God, preparing us to be communing with the, with the power of the Holy Spirit that will change us. You don't, we don't realize, and I've talked before about it, the blessings that God has for us in heaven as we're changed by Him. And part, a big part of that process is what we do here. We're not here by accident. This is not here just to play footsie. We're here to get things done. Outside to show His goodness, but also in us, in our character. In the very nature of who we are. To conform us to the image of Christ, who was the perfect example. He was the perfect Job. The perfect Adam. The perfect Elijah, the perfect Jeremiah, perfect in every way. And he's trying to make us that same way. How was God very compassionate and merciful to Job? Because he only allowed suffering for very good reason. How was he very compassionate and merciful to Job? Because he restricted what Satan could do to Job. He does that to us, for us too. How was he very compassionate and merciful to Job? Because he sustained him with his unseen hand through all the suffering. How was he very compassionate and merciful to Job? Because in the whole process, God used Satan himself. At the end of it all, God accomplished something wonderful to make Job a better and more blessed man than ever. Remember that as good as Job was at the beginning of the book, he was a better man at the end of it. He was better in character, humbler, and more blessed than before. That's a picture for us of what's available. We will be better because of what God's done through us here. We will be better for it. It's all for good. Every bit of it. All of it. Everything, everything, especially the things that irritate us, especially the things that frustrate us, it will be for good. Good. Because He promised. He promised. And God is faithful for His promise, to all His promises. Wow, so let's move to, wow, um, verse 12. But above all, my brethren, do not swear by either heaven or by earth or with any other oath. But let your yes be yes and your no, no, lest you fall into judgment. So let's look at what um, Jesus said in the Olivet Discourse in Matthew chapter 5, verses 33 to 37. Again, you have heard that it said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform your oaths to the Lord. But I say to you, do not swear at all, neither by heaven, for it's God's throne, nor by the earth, for it is his footstool, nor by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Nor shall you swear by your head, because you cannot make one 
white, black, and let your yes be yes and your no, no. For whatever is more than these is from the evil one. Now God swore oaths. In the New Testament, in Luke chapter 1, verse 73, it talks about the oath that God swore to our father Abraham. It talks about that again to, in Abraham in Hebrews 6.13. For when God made a promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself. And when it says swear, that means oath. So then why does Jesus say in Matthew, and James say again, don't make any oaths? comes back to the same thing that he tried to do earlier about our character. Too often, we say, you know, I'm going to do that. I promise. I swear I will. Why do we have to say those things? Why do we have to add that? Because our word was insufficient before. If I said I'm going to do it, I won't do it. Only I have to swear on God before I'll do it. I have to make these wild promises to make sure that we're going to do that because my word on itself was insufficient. That's the idea of they made the Jewish custom of binding a non-binding oath. If I didn't say it on God or on the Bible, then I can lie. It's okay. Look, I didn't swear on the Bible, so I get scotch free. I can, you know, fingers crossed behind my back. I don't have to say the truth. Be it not so. That's not what, what James is saying. Saying yes is yes and no is no is sufficient. Don't make a big deal of it. And don't try to bring God into it to pervert it for your own devices. So, that's why they use the word, lest you fall into judgment. Because we'll have to give an account. Again, all this thing that James is talking about, again, not to make you feel bad, not to come under condemnation, for there's no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus, but to be aware of that we will still have to give an account. We'll get to be in heaven and we'll have access and that'll be Amazing, there'll be no more tears. It would be wonderful. But, hey, there's going to be rewards in heaven. We're going to have jobs to do. There are things we're going to have there. The God is, we're not, we're not, heaven is not like the end. It's a new beginning. A much better beginning. We need to take a hold of that and get it. That as we do here and what we do now, I don't want to use the word lightly like it's practice, because it is more than that. It's not insignificant. But heaven will be the real thing. The real thing. We need to keep our eyes fixed on that. That's what it means on eternity. We forget that because we think this is all there is. This is the car ride to get. You know, when you're going to a car ride, you want to see the Grand Canyon. And car ride can be fun. You get nice stops on the way. But your destination, that's where you're going to. That's the plan. Heaven is the plan. And that should excite us, encourage us, inspire us. And so, we don't need to make a big deal about things here. We just need to be clear. Yes, yes, no, no. And that's it. Because everything we say has to be what we believe. That's what the character we're talking about. Okay, so the next part. And this is what I spoke last week at the SBC. So I'm like, okay, what do I pare down? But I will try to be brief on this. Verses 13 to 16 in chapter 5. James suddenly switches tack. And he says, Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing psalms. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Confess your trespasses to one another, and pray for one another that you may be healed. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. So, that seems to be a bit of a a change, like where was he going? He's here, and then he suddenly switches, right? But really, it all ties in together because what James is always addressing, he's addressing the body. 
Okay, and everything he brings back to is how we're to do this together. This is something, the unity of the Spirit and the unity of the body. And so he says, obviously the person who's praying, the worst of suffering, sorry, needs to pray. But then he adds in, if anyone's cheerful, let him sing songs. I'm like, okay, how are those two connected? One of the things we realize is in the body and fellowship, when we're together, okay, there are times when we come in tired, angry, sick, discouraged, frankly depressed. But then when we're together and we're singing, like tonight, when we sang for an hour, and we have wonderful worship, we're changed. I came in tired, didn't have much in my tank, wondering, oh God, I need help because I don't even know what to say. I've read the stuff, but it doesn't seem very inspired. I need help. And then we sing these worship songs that I think was specifically designed for me. I'm selfish that way. I think it that way, but it may not be true. But that's what it seemed. And it's like, wow, this is exactly what I needed. And so when I see and look around and see others worshiping, and when we do that, it encourages others. So for those that, when you're worshiping and you're sincere in your worship, you're doing it unto the Lord, but you're also doing it for the benefit of your sisters and brothers in Christ. And your singing is not for naught. It actually is a blessing unto the Lord and to the body. And to the body. It is actually a healing bomb to the body. It strengthens people. So that's why he sandwiches. He wants you to know when you're cheerful, you need to be cheerful that. doesn't mean you don't have compassion. Oh, it'll be fine and dismiss what they're going through. But to encourage them to, we're going to deal with this. We're here to help you. And let's right now, we're here to, to worship God. Let's do that because that's who we need to first seek. Okay, and then he says, if you're sick, call on the elders of the church. Okay. Why does he say call on the elders of the church? Because part of that, that's part of the role that they do. Part of it is for them to bring in attention. And like we have here, we have some anointing oil that we got from Israel. Okay. And he says, the prayer of faith will save the sick. And I've shared before, what we're talking about in sick sickness, there's different kinds of sickness. Naturally, we think of sick, we think of physical illness. And I see people all the time. It's what I do. They come in because they're sick. But a big percentage of them have emotional, mental, and especially spiritual sickness. Until we cannot expect anything of physical sickness until we address those things. They won't be well. Half the people I see are suffering from anxiety. And how much of us, how much of us, how many times of the day do are we anxious? Are we fretful? Are we worried? We are. And when we're doing that, it's because I'm focused. We're focused on the temple, not on the eternal. We're focused on the here and now. So, the invitation, what he's saying is, praying in faith will save the sick, because what James is talking about is the first thing of real healing is spiritual healing, healing of the soul. When our soul is sick, everything else is corrupted by it. So, until we have salvation, we're always going to be sick. We're going to be mentally, emotionally, and physically sick. Because the purpose of that is because of stuff in the world. When you're saved, all that suffering is intended to conform you to Christ. All that suffering is not only for your own benefit, but also for the benefit of those around you. It's a whole different meaning and purpose to illness. It's not the same thing. It may look the same on the outside. It's very different on the inside. It's very different in the intended purpose. And what James is addressing... For us, and he's saying, Look, we need to have faith. We need to humble ourselves. So, when you're asking for help, you're humbling yourself and you're coming before and asking, I need help. I can't do this on my own. I need help. You're anointing with oil because oil, as I've shared before, was both is a form of physical healing with olive oil, which actually helps with wounds and 
with dropsy and different conditions back in the day, but definitely a sign of the power of the Holy Spirit, an anointing of the Holy Spirit, and a trust in your faith, but also in the faith of the body. The body acting in faith for you, believing in you. And it unites the body when you get to pray for somebody. When you see somebody suffering, and we use Group Me as an app, and, you, and we're using the technology to kind of do that way, and people ask for prayer support, which is what it's intended for. It's intended for this very reason, that people can pray in faith for you. That you ask in faith, also pray in faith, and other people praying alongside you. And I hope when you're saying and clicking that love button, you're basically saying, I'm praying for you and praying in faith for you. That's what we want to do. That's what unites the body. A, you get to know where the others are. You get to realize you're not the only one suffering. We keep thinking when I'm suffering, I'm the only one going through any difficulties. Everybody else has the perfect life. Because look, I see that on Facebook. It's all perfect. Okay? It's not a perfect life. Everybody's suffering. Everybody's suffering. They have a facade, a veneer, that everything's okay. And they smile. How are things fine? I've heard a definition of fine being freaked out, insecure, neurotic, and emotional. So, um, <laughs> so when they say fine, I, automatically that kind of comes up to my mind, thinking, oh, okay, that's not good. <laughs> um, but as I'm saying, we think everything's fine. Okay? But... They're not so fine. We have struggles in our hearts. We're battling demons. We have challenges at home. We have challenges at work. And so we say everything's okay when it's not. That's not what James is talking about. He's asking for the body of Christ to be real. To be authentic. To ask for help. One of the privileges that I'm seeing here is we're becoming much more authentic much more real. And because of that, we're seeing the Spirit move. There's more available. As we press in, as we become real, I'm not saying we want you to do bad, but we want to know if you're not doing well that we can pray for you and we want to come alongside and help each other. Sometimes you can help me better with my problems in prayer than I can help myself because I can't see things. And likewise, I can do the same for you. That's what it means to be in the body together. Somebody an eye, somebody a hand, somebody a foot. So, First Thessalonians 5.11, you won't have that on the screen because I just added it in. Paul says, Therefore, comfort each other and edify one another just as you also are doing just as you're doing. So, why, if you're doing it, why did he say it? Because we're to do it and to do it even more. So it's not keep doing. The process is not one time. It's a continual process. Okay. So one of the things, just to finish up on things of prayer, oh, thank you is, um, and I mentioned about James talking about prayer. Prayers that we give have to be based on faith, have to be girded by faith, and culminate in faith. It has to be an expectant faith. Okay? This is something we have a hard time with. We're rational beings. We think we live in a world that's all done by basically what we see by the five senses. And prayer in faith is beyond our five senses. Is beyond the four dimensions that we know reality. I've already shared this many times. Most scientists agree there are a minimum of 11 space-time dimensions. Minimum. 10 for string theory, 11 for M theory. I spent a lot of time, I like that kind of thing. But the point is, there's many more dimensions of reality than we can see. God works beyond what we see and understand continually. And prayer and faith is, I trust that you're a good God and you're going to do the right thing. 
And as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, whether I know you're going to save us, you can save us. But I'm going to trust you whether you do or not. That's the kind of prayer he's asking us. That trust of faith, whether you do or not. Because we know that, as it says in Psalm 147.3, God heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. Praise God. And the kind of faith that he's asking for is the faith in Hebrews 11.6. But without faith, without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he comes to God, for he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Who diligently seek him. So it talks, and we'll talk in that same verse we listened to in, in James earlier. It talks about the fervent prayer, fervency, earnestness, diligence. Those are the character traits God loves. Humble, definitely humble with it, but he likes somebody who's earnest and diligent to pursue him. Because why? Why does God want that of us? Because that's how he is with us. That's his nature. He's diligent. He's earnest. Those are the characters. That's what Jesus did. The fact he did that was all diligence. So he says another prerequisite. He says, confess your trespasses. Some translations say faults. Some say sins. Why? Confession frees us. Confession frees us. It frees us of the burden of shame, of guilt, of condemnation. Confession frees us to receive prayer. We ask people to pray for, you know, we hear this all the time. I find it unmentioned or, you know, I'm not going to say what that is. And I'm not saying everything needs to be public. But I am saying there needs to be a place to be able to confess your sins to one another. When we confess, God does amazing things. When you look at the history of all the modern revivals, there was huge confession. People came to the altar and confessed. They had no fear because they knew that what they did here is nothing compared to what God can do for them. They had no shame because what they wanted was to lay themselves at the altar and wanted to receive from God all that He could offer, knowing that by confession, that humility, that honestness, because confess means there's no pride there when you're confessing. True confession. There's no pride there. There's no self-respect there. There's nothing of you there. You have to humble yourself among everybody else, especially when it's public. God is very, very drawn to that. And He moves. When He's drawn to it, His presence comes known. He makes Himself manifest. And J. Edwin Orr declares, If you sin secretly, confess secretly, admitting publicly that you need the victory, but keeping details to yourself. If you sin openly, confess openly to remove stumbling blocks from those whom you have hindered. If you have sinned spiritually, and I'll tell you how, prayerlessness, lovelessness, and unbelief, as well as the offspring unbelief, which is criticism, then confess to church that you've been a hindrance. So, the thing that we don't get, and especially as a body, we think that our walk with Christ is only personal. It is personal. Each of us are given account. It is, you have to make a choice. But it's also corporate. My sins affect you. Your sins affect me. We are in this together. We are in this together. And that doesn't mean if you sin, you have to leave the church because my sins affect me. That's not what we're saying. Because everyone sins. We don't go a day without that. Okay? What it is saying is, when I sin, I have to be conscious that, yes, I have to confess towards God, but I also have to give an account. And he talks about not only sins of commission, but here, the sins of omission. Like I said, None of us without fault. None. 
So if we all say, those who don't sin can stay in the church, everybody else has to leave, there'd be nobody here. Jesus, but everybody else be gone. We're not saying that. Please don't read that from what I'm saying. I am saying that when we confess and give an account, and when I've heard that, I know that when somebody confesses to me or when somebody humbles them, themselves and asks prayer for me and I pray for them, or when I do that and they pray for me, we're both mutually blessed. We're both mutually blessed. In God's economy, us working together, both the confessor and the one who receives the confession are blessed as they unify under the cross, seeking God in the midst of that. It encourages me. It may lead me to confession or it may lead me to self-examination. Oh, yeah, I'm, he's that, but what about me with this? You know, I cheat on my taxes and he does this. It doesn't, you know, that's all that. So all those things come into play. God uses that. So by being honest with one another, God will use that to bless the body. By praying, God will use that to bless the body. So the idea is the negative could be aware of, but the positive is to impel us, to compel us to move forward, to encourage us, inspire us. And that's what he says, the effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. The effective, it's effective because it's honest. It's effective because it's, it's humble. It's earnest. It's diligent. It recognizes that we are sinners. God is not. We need his help. We're righteous not because of the right things we do. And we are encouraged to do right things. We're righteous because of what God's done in us. We're righteous because we allow God's work in us make us righteous, and we act accordingly. So yes, we have to have right behavior because of what he did for us out of gratitude, but also through the working of the Holy Spirit to change our character, to make us more like Christ. Which, for most of us, requires some trial and suffering because we're a little hard-headed and we need a lot of help. Just like children. Just like children. We need a lot of help. It's not our natural disposition. Our natural disposition is to wander around like J.J. is and look around and try to get attention. We're all like that. Our natural disposition is like the little kids who are seeking and drawing attention to themselves and they murmur in church because they want the attention about themselves. That's our natural inclination. And it doesn't matter how old you are. So... A quote by British evangelist Henry Varley talks about the kind of man that God wants and what the world needs. He, he uttered these words in 1873. The world has yet to see what God can do with and for and through and in a man who is fully and wholly consecrated to him. So with and for through and in, fully and wholly consecrated to him. So, Jesus was the only one who did that. We won't achieve that goal, but that's still the goal to aspire to. That's still the goal that we're here for. That's still the opportunity to see. And the blessing of doing that is not just because you become more for Christ for your sake, and not even just for the rewards of heaven, which are going to be immeasurable but also for the blessing of those within the body you're in and for the world at large. That's what Christ did for us, and that's what he wants for us, to be like him in the same way. And that's what a righteous man is. So Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4, 1 to 4, I therefore, the prisoner, prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling which you, have, you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, Endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. If you want to know a, a motto for the church to go by, that's kind of a great one to follow. 
So, um, so James then says, he uses the example, and we'll finish the last four verses of the chapter, and he starts with verse 17 about Elijah. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain in the land for three and a half, three years and six months, three and a half years. And he prayed again, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its fruit. In verse 19, Brethren, if any among you wanders from the truth and someone turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. So I'm looking at these verses, and you may too and go, okay, I'm not sure how these all connect. Okay? Um, the first thing to appreciate in everything he's talking about is James circles around as he did throughout the, the whole five chapters. He brings up the topic like the rich and comes back to it. He brings things up and comes back to it. Okay? Kind of like how the teachers teach in school. They come around the topic until you get it over and over again. And what he's telling us here is the same thing. Elijah, who did mighty things for the Lord, called down fire on Mount Carmel, ran like the wind, and yet then was depressed in the caves right afterwards. Elijah was a man like us. He, he was a human being. He was with fault. He was a man. God did many things, amazing things. And he was flawed. God can do amazing things even though we're flawed. It's not about being perfect. It's not about, even though he's an example, don't condemn yourself because of your imperfections. Don't condemn yourself because you have not yet arrived. Don't follow through. And everything that we talked about, don't say, well, I can't do that. I screwed up. Look at me. I'm not going to be able to follow through with this. So I might as well just bail. Forget it. This is done. I'm, I'm checking out. That's not what he's talking about here. Okay? And so he's saying, hey, we are flawed. We will always be flawed here. And you're going to make mistakes. But just like Elijah, what did God do? God in mercy reached to Elijah. God, what did he do? He whispered to him in the cave. And he let him know it's not a big thing. God is the one who's driving us. Realize that God is still there. We are mortal. God is immortal. God is perfect. And he's there with us. And then you have an example. He says, so he talks to the individual to let him know it's Elijah. And then he goes to the other part. He says, Brethren, he brings it to the whole body. If any of you among you want from the truth, so that means when you look around and you see people getting discouraged and they're getting distracted and they're slipping away, you need to come in and you're worshiping and you're presenting and you're connected. But there are other times when you go, they've, they've, they've moved away and they've done things and they've chased after things of the world. Call out to them. If you do, reach out to them. Talk to them. Show them the goodness of God. Every one of us needs that reset. Every one of us needs to know. Just like we hear here, one of the blessings we have is we have great messages from Pastor Jeff and, and Pastor Glenn just sharing again and again about the goodness of God, the mercy of God, the Word over and over, preaching us, teaching us, admonishing and encouraging us. And as we do the same, encouraging others, we'll help them. We can, it says here, right? Save a soul from death. Paul was not perfect. Paul struggled over and over. He talked at the beginning about Demas, and Demas was there. Then he talked about Demas changing after the world. He had some successes with Timothy and Luke and others. He was able to reconcile with John Mark and get back together with him and called John Mark so he could encourage me. And Paul did so many amazing things for the Lord, but he suffered a lot because he was a stubborn-headed man who beat against the goats. Okay? But God used him mightily. And the point that I'm saying is, don't be discouraged. Don't be discouraged. God is good. Most of the work is done by the Lord, by the goodness of God. He works to flawed people like us, like Elijah. And we don't do this alone. We do it together, hand in hand with others, to help others, to see the needs of others, and to come alongside them to let them know that God is good. He is worth it. He is worth it. 
So that's how he ends it. James enters ends five chapters of his book with, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone turns him back, letting him know that he turns a sinner, let him know. So he's saying, let the guy, not, he's not saying let the sinner know, he's saying the guy who t- helped somebody, who brought somebody, let him know that this was meaningful work. This is what Christ did for us. This is what we're to do. So when we share the goodness of God and we bring a brother, when we see somebody who's not connecting and we bring them back, save a soul from death. That's a huge ministry. It does phenomenal glory to God. You want to glorify God, you save a soul from the sin, from death. That brings a lot of glory to God. He's pretty pleased with that. So that's what he asks of us. So, um, okay, I will now open for the brief time. We have left any questions. Anybody any questions? I've thrown a lot of information. So let's close in prayer. Dear God, as we uh, close in prayer, Father, we just pray that uh, you uh, you get all the glory through this. And I pray that you will let your words so deep into us and that, uh, Father, we may be changed, especially to love you more and to serve others for your glory. In Jesus' name, 